The Vaximillion website is live. People are flocking to it to get their million dollars. I signed up and I'm betting everybody on this call signed up today. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I am Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Layla Tassi, Jane Cahoon, and Laura Johnston. Have you all signed up yet? Wait, wait. I'm going to say Jane and Laura signed up. Layla has not. How did you know that? <laughs> uh, you're wrong. I have not signed oh, up yet. All right. I, I did it at the bus stop this morning. Well, and that's how quick it was. I did it on my phone. Because uh, if some people are going and getting like the coming soon, um, just hit refresh because my computer was doing the same thing. So It does ask you for every personal detail except your social security number, but we're going to do a story that explains, I think it's a health record because you're attesting you got the shot so that it would not be public. But if it's, it is public, we'll file a records request and get it all. So we'll have to see. Let's begin. What powerful language did a federal judge use in ruling that shareholders can sue First Energy for lost value they suffered as a result of the utility's role in a huge bribery scheme. Jane Cahoon, this is a big win for the shareholders and another in a long line of big losses for First Energy because of its dastardly deeds. <laughs> yes, and the federal judge, Judge Algernon Marbley in Columbus, he did not beat around the bush in this 44-page decision that, that basically allowed First Energy shareholders to go ahead with this lawsuit against the company's board of directors. And as you said, as a result of this massive bribery scheme to pass House Bill 6, this tainted nuclear bailout law. So Marbley wrote that the shareholders, you asked about his language, this was great, have alleged have alleged by clear and convincing evidence that the board knew or recklessly disregarded reports and red flags that First Energy was paying massive amounts of illicit bribes to pass this legislation. Mm -hmm. So, and he went on to say, you know, taken as true, these allegations support the inference that that a majority of the board members recklessly disregarded their duties to the company and allowed this criminal scheme to to continue unchecked. So yeah, those are those are pretty strong words, I think. And uh, the judge also note, noted that the the shareholders had sought increased disclosure and transparency and accountability and they didn't get it. Um, and this was after, uh, th this was going back to 2017 after First Energy flew then House Speaker Larry Householder on a private jet to Washington for President Donald Trump's inauguration. And that's according to an FBI affidavit and, and documents that prosecutors have filed in this case. And as we know, of course, Householder's now under federal indictment and accused of orchestrating this massive bribery scheme. So apparently the shareholders at the time wanted the company to issue annual reports that which would have been presented to an audit committee and placed on the company's website for more transparency but the board i guess at the time they urged shareholders to vote no vote against that proposal you know saying that they were complying with lobbying and disclosure requirements and you know the judge why, why would a shareholder <laughs> vote against that i mean you well have to be out you know, of mind yeah. to vote against that unless you kind of suspect they're doing illegal things to get the money um it is interesting that donald trump has raised his head now in this horrible scheme i do th i i don't know if you saw you were off but there was a story i think out of new jersey last week where there are shareholders of a first energy subsidiary that are wondering if first energy in ohio could not find 
enough of the bride money to make this work. And they're questioning whether I think it's 10 to 12 million was siphoned out of the New Jersey arm to pay the bribery scheme <laughs> that, that this bribery scheme was so massive. First Energy couldn't afford it all on its own. Yeah, I don't know I, if there's any truth <laughs> to it, but that's really interesting if this spreads across state lines. Right. And as you said, this is just more trouble for, for them. They already face about two dozen state and federal lawsuits. And we reported recently that they're apparently negotiating a deferred prosecution agreement with the feds. So, you know, this is just more on top of that. Well, and the sad thing at the at the heart of all this is while they were providing $60 million to, to for bribe money to get special deals and soak the ratepayers in Ohio, they weren't maintaining their infrastructure. I mean, Ohio is lacking a quality infrastructure of electric electricity, especially Northeast Ohio, because they just weren't doing their job. And now, now the whole ceiling is falling in. We need that money to be spent. You need the maintenance. And where are they? Uh, this is uh, this story's got long, long tails. It'll be interesting to see where it goes. Yep. You're lis- listening to this week in the CLE. Why did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine change all the rules on how the Vaximillion lottery will work? Laura Johnston, he laid out his whole plan a week ago for how this could work, and then he laid out an entirely different plan yesterday. Right. So basically, I think it's because of the waiver, because when you have to sign up to get your million dollar chance, you have to click, you know, I read the the. Um, contract and I agree to it. Also, it's going to be easier to track people because when you fill out this form, you're filling out your name, your current address, your email address, your phone number, so that they can find you pretty quickly. And what's really interesting is we've been told over and over, we're we're going to pick names five weeks on a Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. Well, they're actually going to pick names on a Monday, so they have two (laughs) days to contact you, make sure you are who you say you are, and that you've been vaccinated, and then they'll announce your name on that Wednesday night. So don't don't watch the lottery hoping they pick your name. If you haven't heard, it's it's not you at this point, but we'll all be watching <laughs> to see if our friends or family or somebody else is getting pulled. The other good news is because of people like La- Layla and Jane, the odds are better. Like, this is opt-in. <laughs> They're not in. So I'm going to sign up. I'm going to sign up. Yeah, it's been up for an yeah, hour and too. a half when we're recording this. So you have a little <laughs> bit of time. I think you have to be uh, signed up. You can keep signing up even after the first drawings start, I believe, and you'll get in for for further drawings. But yeah, the OhioVaxamillion.com did go live this morning. So far, as far as I know, it has not crashed. Uh, people who don't have access to the internet can get in on this. They have to call one 833 ask ODH. So you can still still opt in. Um, and so Do I have to sign up every week or once I sign up, I'm in for the whole ride. As I understand it now, you are in for the full ride. Now, if Mike DeWine comes back next week and tells you you yeah. have to register again, we'll write a different story. I wonder with this two day lag time, if we're going to start seeing scammers call people and say, you've won a million dollars. Uh, oh we're my from, God. you know, like give us your social security number. Ooh, so that would be bad. I yeah, know it would be bad, but I, 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 I don't have the ideas <laughs> sitting over <laughs> in Russia thinking about how to do it. <laughs> hey, did I read correctly that, uh, that, when if you win, you're you're going to be 
outed <laughs> publicly that they're yeah. going to. Yeah, you agree to that when you yeah, sign up. Yeah, that's part of the waiver, right? That you. Right. Uh, it's not like the lottery where you have to. You, you can, can be decline secret. to be. Why yeah, is that? Why you, because why it's a marketing that? ploy. And if you're not going to get the person to stand up and say, I got the shot and I want a million dollars, you lose the value of the marketing. The whole reason they're doing this is to publicize you can get rich quick. So I. I don't have any problem with that. If you take yeah. the million, you got to stand up there and be And the you guys, pile. if you're just listening and you haven't seen huh. the state logo for this, it is hilarious. The X is a Band-Aid and there are little like glints coming off like the M, yeah. I think. It's like <laughs> this like gaudy, like, you know, in your face, jazz hands, Vax a million logo. So um, just so you know, Laura Hancock has a very uh, thorough story on this. You will be responsible for any taxes associated with this price. You're not going to walk course. away with a million dollars straight up. Of course, um, you pay taxes on income. <laughs> I'm, just, okay, I'm just letting people know. Um, but according <laughs> to the state, they say it's working that this past Friday was their highest vaccination administration day in three weeks since April 23rd. They had 25,000 shots administered. So, according to them, they think they're they're on their way to success. Yeah, this seems like it, it's going to work. And it, really, $5 million to get a whole bunch more people vaccinated, mm. maybe it's worthwhile. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Leila Tassi, you have been chasing down this subject for years, the need to increase the number of housing vouchers for people that need shelter. What was the big news coming from Marsha Fudge, our former congresswoman who now heads housing and urban development on the federal government level? Yes, this is big news. Fudge announced yesterday that that HUD will spend $5 billion in American Rescue Plan money to provide 70,000 new vouchers to public housing authorities around the country for housing for people who are homeless or who are in danger of becoming homeless. Fudge said the vouchers will help 130,000 people who are experiencing or at risk of homelessness, and they'll cover rent for apartments and houses until the end of 2022, and then will be renewed for families who are participating in the program. So for the Cuyahoga Metropolitan Housing Authority, that means 339 vouchers. Akron Metropolitan Housing Authority will get 99. Lorraine Metropolitan Housing Authority will get 45, and Portage will get 24. In total, this is $10.6 million in vouchers coming to Ohio. So this is really, really great news. But but I just want to kind of put this in into perspective a little bit. Here's some information from, from the Northeast Ohio Coalition for the Homeless. in twenty, And this is from 2019. So that doesn't even really contemplate the housing insecurity that the pandemic has brought our way. But according to them, the Office of Homeless Services estimated that 7,000 of, of people entered 7,000 people entered shelter for housing in Cuyahoga County in 2019. But based on census data and the Department of Education's definition of homelessness, the estimate is closer to 23,000 people who are experiencing homelessness in Cuyahoga County. And that definition includes people who are sharing housing with other families and they're living in hotels or motels or campgrounds. So they're sort of like the kind of off the books homeless homeless uh, population. Cleveland Public Schools that year recorded nearly 3,000 homeless students. So this HUD announcement is really wonderful news. It means Marsha Fudge has already done more in just a few months for people facing housing insecurity than Ben Carson did in four years. But it's 339 vouchers to distribute among thousands and thousands who need one. And I mean, will CMHA have to hold a special lottery for this? Absolutely. That, that doesn't diminish the importance of this announcement, 
but it just really puts it in perspective. We are a long way from from solving housing insecurity and homelessness. So, well, you also have the the very difficult wrinkle that right now landlords don't have to take it. There's some laws that have been passed. One in Akron and Cleveland City Council is considering it, making that uh, impossible for landlords that they'll have to accept a housing voucher. But right now, as you've written, Layla. Lots of people that have the vouchers have a very hard time finding a place to live where they want to live. That's right. And it's also complicated by the fact that even if you pass the law that requires landlords to accept vouchers, there are still a lot of bureaucratic problems within, um, you know, within the system that that make it difficult for, you know, there are waiting periods and, and inspections that need to take place that sometimes get, you know, drawn out for much longer than need to be. And that means sometimes landlords are going a month or two without income for that rental property. And it makes it very, you know, unpalatable for them to participate in the program. And and often that's the, the reason for the pushback. There really needs to be kind of a top to bottom review of how the system works and and include in that these um, these laws that that ban voucher discrimination. You should write a prescription for Marsha Fudge on all the I steps absolutely you want to. to I... <laughs> yes, yes, I promise. I will. <laughs> okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How much money has the unemployment office in Ohio hemorrhaged over the past year? Jane Cahoon, they came out with staggering numbers. It's amazing how badly managed this office has been for the past 14 months. Oh, my gosh. Yes, we we got a real idea of the scope of this on Monday uh, about the amount of money that was paid to people who did not qualify for unemployment in Ohio. That troubled system, as you said, has paid out more than $2.1 billion. That's with a B. And that was either by mistake or because of fraud since the start of the coronavirus crisis. This is according to Matt Dam Schroeder, who was recently named the interim director of the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services. He dropped this bomb at a late day news conference on Monday, just happened to be after Governor Mike DeWine and Lieutenant Governor John Husted had already held their their coronavirus briefing, you know, didn't mention that. But anyway, we're talking about the period from March 2020 of last year to March 31st this year. And that that amount includes more than 1.6 billion, which is 1.2 billion in federal coronavirus benefits and 457 million in state benefits that was just mistakenly paid out due to some kind of error by a worker, an employer, or state officials. And then during that same time period, about 462 million was paid to fraudulent claims. And that that includes mostly the federal pandemic assistance payments that amounted to 441 million and then another 21 million in traditional unemployment benefits. Now, you know, you may wonder how in the heck did this happen? Um, I don't think we really have a clear picture of that, nor do we know where any, you know, whether any of this money will be recovered. Dam Schroeder basically gave the same explanation that we've heard over and over again for the last year that this outdated unemployment system was overwhelmed, that they were under intense pressure to pay claims quickly, and it was easier for scammers to exploit the federal pandemic benefits because they had loosened the verification standards. Yeah. Let me stop and, there one second, though. Yeah. The line that he said yesterday that I just, I, it was utter BS, is when he said, 
this system was designed for the status quo, not mm -hmm. this once in a lifetime demand. Of course, it should be designed for the once in a lifetime demand. That's when people need it in recessions, right, and, right, in crushing times. And he just said that, like, well, you know, we we were designed, so you know, that's we were overwhelmed. No one saw this coming. <laughs> of course, we yeah. saw it coming. This is why we have unemployment offices. That was just utter right. BS, and I can't believe he stood there with a straight face and uttered it. Well, they should be ready for the tidal wave every day. Right, and he, he used the uh, analogies, you know, to uh, like the 100 years flood, you know, this was built for a normal annual rainfall. And then the another one he used was that putting these safeguards in place while, while compiling these, you know, uh, you know, keeping up with these claims, you know, meant Ohio had to build the plane while flying it at yeah, the same right. time. It's so like such a cliche. <laughs> Look, I, I get it, right? That that the the scammers are very sophisticated. I mean, God, they shut down the whole East Coast gasoline uh, supply for days. That they're very sophisticated. Ohio wasn't ready for that. So okay, I you know, the, once it started, you shouldn't have lied to the to the auditor about it. You should have tried to put up roadblocks to it instead of hiding it. But the idea that that it's not their fault, that they weren't ready for the onslaught, that's not acceptable. I got to think this is going to hurt Mike DeWine big time in his reelection run, both from the right and the left. I mean, he, you know, a lot of people believe he's done a pretty good job with the pandemic. He's been a visible leader and we've applauded a lot of what he's done. But this is one of the most striking failures of state government I've ever seen. Yeah, that's that's sort of why I maybe perhaps snarkily mentioned that this news conference occurred like it started at 430 in the afternoon, well after they had already done the briefing, DeWine and, and Houston. You know, it's sort of like struck me as something he didn't really want to deal with at the at the briefing. Well, there was a great moment last week when somebody asked him whose idea was the Vaximilian lottery. And he said, it's me. The buck stops with me. And then Laura Hancock was the next questioner and said, hey, what's going on? How did you allow your unemployment office to get this bad? <laughs> and he immediately goes, ah, damn Schroeder over there will answer that question. Yeah, the buck stops with me. I just can't imagine that Jim Renacci from the right, Nanwelli from the left are not going to use this. Look, these are these are amounts of money that are hard to fathom. You could run the entire city of Cleveland for more than two years on this money. That, that's just a yeah. And the fact that so amount. much of it is just due to mistakes, not even to fraud. I mean, the fraud amount is staggering to begin with, but then the extra $1.6 in just errors? Yeah, I, I'm blown away. We will be publishing on our website, uh, and I think in the Plain Dealer in the next few days, an I in Ohio story that shows people they can get a waiver if they have been overpaid in unemployment they can get a waiver to to keep it the, there's they're getting bills now for as much as twenty thousand dollars and you know nobody who's gone through the pandemic has twenty thousand in cash sitting around and there is a system the state's not publicizing where people can be protected from that look for that story later on our website and in print you're listening to this week in the cle how did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine clarify his mask announcement from last week in a way that affects every child attending daycare or schools in the state? Laura Johnston, after Mike DeWine lifted his mask mandate late Friday to match the CDC, teachers everywhere, and I suspect parents everywhere, were like, okay, what does that mean for my kid going back to school Monday? We have an answer. 
Right. And I love that you use the word clarify when it comes to Mike DeWine, because like I'm typing in our team's conversation, like, oh, he just said you have to keep wearing masks at school. Oh, wait, he just said it's only until June 2nd. So yeah, I think a lot of people were confused. And so we finally have an answer. Kids have to wear a mask until June 2nd. So that means through June 1st, all schools are required to keep their mask mandates intact. Until then, state order. After that, your schools can make your own decision. Now, DeWine has this idea that this will get you through the school year. And for a lot of schools, you will. A lot of schools end right before Memorial Day. My kid's school does not. There's plenty of schools that go into June. Also, we got to ask about summer schools and all the programs that schools are offering to catch kids up after the pandemic. But according to him, even though these kids are not vaccinated, the mask mandate is off and schools can make their own decisions. Okay. It it is odd, though, that there are classes that will be in session after the second. So the very thing he was trying to avoid changing the rules before the end of the year, they're going to. Um, Well, yeah, it's up to the district if they decide to. In in Solon, where my wife teaches, their last day is June 3rd. So they'll wear a mask every day (laughs) until the last day, and then they're free. No more teachers, no more books, no more masks. This is going to be something that you know all these school boards are going to be talking about. Because regardless of whether it's a mask mandate or not, kids under 12 are not going to be vaccinated by the time school resumes in August. So, I mean, as a parent, I hope they keep their mask orders on just because my kids are not protected through vaccine. Once everybody's able to be vaccinated, then I think we can we can lift up our hands and say, okay, go to school without your mask. But this is going to be a hot topic this summer, I think, in some districts, especially if there's a divided population. And Laura, your your district has school after June 2nd, right? I do. Um, we're they were in school till June 10th. Well, so what what do you think will happen? <laughs> I think they'll keep wearing masks till the end of the year. I cannot see Rocky River changing course just because the mask mandate statewide comes off. Well, given all the bad behavior by the teachers in that district, I think they'd want to keep a mask on to hide their identities. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How many votes will it take to emerge from the Cleveland mayoral primary later this year? And what will it take to win the whole shooting match in November? Leila Tassi, this is actually a very easy race to win. Yeah, it is. And it historically kind of has been, too. The magic number is 50,000 votes to win the general election, according to our Rich Axner. That's less than a fifth of the city's population. And it will be obviously way easier to advance from the primary Rich looked back over our recent mayor contests and found that in 2005, when Jackson was first elected against then incumbent Jane Campbell, he won the eight way primary with just over 20,000 votes and then beat Campbell 54,463 votes to her 44,754. The population was bigger then by about 70,000 people. Since then, uh, Councilman Bill Patman challenged Jackson and made it out of the primary with just 4,000 votes. And Zach Reed made it to the general election against Jackson four years ago with just 7,300 votes. And then there was that year when Jackson ran against Ken or when Ken Lancey challenged Jackson, but there was just the two of them. So there was no primary. So when you look at the numbers throughout history, as Rich has done, you see that, you know, voter turnout in the mayoral election and and the margin needed for victory seems pretty consistent, uh, despite the fluctuations in in population. It's a really good story. Check it out. (laughs) Cleveland.com. And, and one of the problems you have is you really don't have candidates electrifying the the populace. And if you look at what happened in the presidential election, 
when Kamala Harris was on the ballot, we still had really low turnout in Cleveland. That was which, very surprising. Yes. Yeah, could be a really bad sign for how this goes. For the candidates, it's great news. You can get through the primary if you just get a small group of followers to the polls. We'll have to see how that goes. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What tools did Lieutenant Governor John Houston offer to employers to try to get their workers to return to their jobs? Jane Coon, I have a feeling like this whole unemployment situation is we're living under an authoritarian government. They're just they're sticking it to the people really badly <laughs> and only thinking about what the employers need. Mike DeWine babbled away when Laura Hancock tried to, to drill into, are you thinking about the workers and their child care issues and their illness issues and their fears of of COVID. And his answer was just like, well, we got to get the economy moving. The employers need workers, so we're going to squeeze them. Yeah, you pretty much covered it there, Chris. But <laughs> as I said earlier, Houston and and DeWine, you know, conveniently said nothing about the extent of fraud and mistakes in the office, but they focused on getting people back to work. And so Houston announced that there is a new form that employers can use to report their employees who don't want to come back to work. And, uh, you know, they, they, they said they're listening, as you guys talked about on the podcast last week, they're listening to employers who are frustrated that they don't have enough workers on the job. So these, these new forms are going to make it easier to report workers, uh, you know, who don't return and they continue to collect unemployment. And uh, he said they're they're going to be on the Ohio Means Jobs website and the Ohio Employment Help website and 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 add a toll free number as well. And and he basically said people who continue to receive unemployment after their company reopens could could lose their benefits if if they don't come back. Uh, but as you said, they didn't. Laura asked the governor, "Well, have you undertaken any research to find out?" why people are not coming back, such as childcare issues or, you know, woefully low wages. And, and as you said, he did the dance and said, you know, we're, we're, we're going to get, we want to get people back to work. Look, we're, we're paying unemployment, you know, even though we um, cut out the, or we're declining the uh, federal $300 extra a week, you know, Hey, we're still paying unemployment and, you know, unemployment's coming down. And, um, and, you know, on top of that, they're also beginning Sunday, jobless Ohioans, all jobless Ohioans have to search for work if they, if they want to keep getting the compensation. So the, the, what strikes me is the disparity between how he's treating the vaccination problem compared to the unemployment problem with the vaccination problem. It's a carrot. You have a chance to win a million dollars. If you get vaccinated with the unemployment problem, it's the stick. You know, we're going to have your employer report you. We're going to take the money away from you. We're going to kind of beat you into submission. Why not go with the carrot? I mean, if that's working and it appears to be for the vaccination, why not take that $300 and say, we'll give this to you after you get a job. If you get a job, we will give you the 300 for another six weeks to help you make the adjustment. Something to just say, yeah. we yeah. understand your pain. We, we know how hard this is. We want to make it easier. They're not. They're, they're stripping away money to make people so desperate that they take low paying jobs they don't want and are miserable and then worry about their kids because there's not enough daycare. It's, a, it's another one where I think, especially um, the Democratic challenger, is going to score big points on DeWine when he's running next year. Oh, I think Dan Whaley's already put out some, you know, releases about 
Well, more about the problems in the unemployment office than, than this. But, you know, it's funny, Houston was uh, was pretty defensive about this as well. After Laura asked that that question, he jumped in and wanted to stress all these training programs that they have to upskill people for for better paying jobs. And he said some of those help out with with child care, et cetera. But, you know, I mean. I, I, look, these are your constituents. These are the people that you're supposed to serve and your decisions are squeezing them instead of helping them along. And I'm, I'm just surprised that they're this cavalier. I mean, we talked about this last week. They're just, they're 100% looking through the prism of the employers who need low paid workers. And that is their entire focus instead of thinking about people. And Nan Whaley won't, won't miss that. Look, this- I wouldn't be surprised if Jim Renacy doesn't somehow use it. <laughs> Can I jump in? It's Laura Johnston. I just feel like they're saying, well, this was needed now. Let's go back to the way it was. And and they just want to return to the status quo and get back to business. But this, I mean, we talked about this so much on the podcast in the last year. The pandemic blew everything apart. Can we not use this as a just a point to reevaluate what would work best for the people of the state and this country and say, we have a chance to redo something rather than just like go back to the way it is. I mean, Mm -hmm. I just, I don't understand. That's a really good point, Laura, that they just want to go back to the way it was where a certain group of people was making money hand over fist instead of taking the lessons from the pandemic and making a better society. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. I mean, we've, we've had this story, um, I think it was Alexis Oatman did the story about childcare and how many childcare centers just in Cuyahoga County closed during the pandemic alone. And we had all these women forced out of the workforce because they had to homeschool their kids. Like, let's look at this as a big picture problem and solve it as a society rather than saying, you need to go back to work at McDonald's so that they can open the, you know, the dining room and not just have the, the drive through anymore. Yeah, Laura. Laura Johnston for governor. <laughs> Laura. <laughs> All right, good stuff. Good conversation. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode. Mm-hmm.